Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. And uh, my name is Preston Washington. I'm the host of the uh, show tonight. Um, what we're going to be talking about is prison reform. We're also going to be talking about the new Jim Crow. Uh, we'll be talking about the privatization of uh, the prison industry here in the United States, uh, particularly uh, New York City. My guest tonight is Edward Yamal Rosario, uh, who's going to talk to us about his activities um, when he was the uh, director of the Correctional Association Prison Visiting Project there in New York City. Good evening, uh, Edward. Well, uh, good evening to you, and thank you for having me. I understand we have some callers on the line. And uh, callers, uh, be steady, hold tight, and we'll get to you around half past the hour. Okay, Eddie, go ahead. All right, so, uh, yes, I'm just going to give you a little, very, hopefully very brief uh, overview of my background. Um, I, for about 10 years, I've been working in the field of criminal justice reform for about 20 years. Uh, I worked uh, for 10 years eventually as a project director for a reentry project called Developing Justice, located in Brooklyn. And it was a community-based approach created by people who were formerly incarcerated uh, to help people who were coming home after having been incarcerated. After doing that for about 10 years, I moved on to the Correctional Association, where I was the associate director for the prison visiting project for the Correctional Association, uh, an independent nonprofit uh, group based in Harlem, that has a unique uh, legal mandate to visit New York State prisons. So in other words, we have a right to go inside New York State. Uh, there's a law on the books that allows the Correctional Association to go inside New York State prisons in order to observe and report on conditions of confinement. We were not a monitoring organization. What we do is what we use our findings in order to advocate for change and uh, for change within prisons especially around areas of abuse and also rehabilitation and also to lessen the dependence on incarceration in New York State. That's a really very brief overview of, like, who I am. I'm also formerly incarcerated, and that's how I basically uh, found my way back into this work. How does all of this, uh, one of the callers wants to know, uh, Mumuva Abdul and his sickness, um, because he's incarcerated, how well are they taking care of him? How are they letting him down? Are you talking about Mumia? Mumia, uh, Mumia, Mumia, yeah. Abdul. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the executive director for the uh, the Correctional Association, Sophia, uh, Sophia Elijah, actually had really uh, had worked with uh, Mumia and his case. Um, it's been bad. It, it, you know, uh, Mumia is a target. He was someone that's politically, con you know, politically con conscious brother. 
who uh, pose a real existential threat to, you know, white supremacy and to the status quo in the United States. So uh, once he was incarcerated, he's been mistreated in ways that, you know, it's really hard to um, to delineate. Um, he's probably been under some really harsh conditions for the time of his incarceration, and lately he's uh, fallen ill. And there's been some questions about uh, the medical treatment that he's been receiving recently in, in lieu of the fact that he's been ill, very ill lately. Has your organization uh, been involved in his uh, situation? No, uh, our executive director, uh, before she came on board to our organization, had some dealings with uh, Mumia. She's done a lot of work, Sophia Elijah, around political prisoners, and Mumia is one person that she knows personally and had worked with. Okay. But uh, the organization I work at right now deals specifically with issues in New York State, not so much nationally. And uh, in terms of your work, what are you the most proudest of doing? Uh, <laughs> that's a difficult one because sometimes, I'll be honest with you, part of doing the work, uh, there are times where you feel very frustrated. Um, I'm, I'm actually uh, no longer work for the Correctional Association. I mean, it's, it, I still, I still, you know, collaborate with the Correctional Association. I adore the work that they do, but I'm personally, you know, taking stock of my work and what kind of impact I'm having. And um, I'm going more and more towards uh, less around, less doing, less um, incremental change and really looking to create radical change. Because I think, um, I mean, when I was growing up here in New York City, I'm a, I'm a Puerto Rican descent, and um, I remember we lived in Bushwick, we had an African-American neighbor, and she always had these great Southern sayings, you know, stuff that, you know, she would come up with. And one of the things that she said often was that if your hair is on fire, you should act as if your hair is on fire. And I didn't really understand it that much when I was a younger kid. But uh, as an adult now, I understand what she meant, is that when things are, when things are really hitting the fan, uh, you need to wake up and you need to uh, react accordingly. And I think that, uh, we've come to a point in American history where um, we need to stop filling a little bit around the edges and really confronting this monster head on. And how will that look and how will that be different than work that I did at the Correctional Association, which I think was really great work? I can't tell you right now. It's a, like a process for me. Okay. Uh, I, am proud, I am proud of one thing, though. Um, having been incarcerated at some, a certain New York State prisons, being able to go back after so many years as someone as, as someone who was uh, charged with reporting on and trying to change the system uh, was something that's a highlight in my life. Um, you know, having come from being incarcerated at a prison, then coming back 20 years later and being able to go inside these prisons and kind of fight the fight and talk to people who are currently incarcerated and try to make changes, I think that's a highlight of my career and, and something I really appreciate having done at the Correctional Association. And what really got you motivated, Eddie, of all the people that have been incarcerated, why you? What provokes you, motivated you to go <laughs> back in I, there and I, try I, to straighten that situation out? I'll tell you the truth. Uh, years ago, I, I didn't want to work 
in this field. You know, I had done prison time. I had gotten out, uh, turned my life around, went to college, you know, did what I had to do. And I was looking to work in the in the field of, you know, policy change and working in, in, around issues that affect our communities, most specifically around substance abuse. So more or less, like, my area of expertise has been around addiction issues and substance abuse issues. And anyway, I thought that having come out, I wanted to give back something to my community. After having taken so much from my community, I wanted to do, you know, to do something that gave back and that gave me some kind of fulfillment in that way. I didn't want to work in the area of criminal justice reform specifically because I knew how difficult that was. And I had gotten a phone call from a gentleman who um, I had trained on a weekend retreat. And as part of the weekend retreat, I modeled an exercise where you stand in front of a camera and you tell your life story like in 10 minutes and you can't talk about religion or politics. And, of course, I, I related my experiences as someone who was formerly incarcerated. This gentleman at the time, unbeknownst to me, was starting to was thinking about creating a reentry project that, was, that would be composed and run by people who were formerly incarcerated. And um, he called me uh, like, a few months later, and, and, and tried to convince me to go on board with him. And I refused. I was like, I, you know, that's really hard work. I don't want to do it. Uh, but he kept calling, and I think what happened was that his kind of determination to get me on board really impressed me. And so that's how I started doing work around criminal justice reform specifically. And, um, you know, uh, I just realized that uh, sometimes the uh, what I tell a lot of young interns that come to work with me, and they ask about, like, how I figured out what I want to do, I think what happens is you have to prepare yourself, right? You have to get a good mm-hmm. education. You have to get some experience. You have to put yourself in situations where you're exposed to different, you know, stimuli and, and so, on, so on and so forth. And you have a kind of idea of where you're going. But what happens, I think, and you know, I think if you talk to anybody, uh, who's been successful in their careers, and you ask them how did they get to where, you know, what they're doing now, many of them will tell you they kind of fell into it because you get like what I call the call. You know, someone will call you and say, I want you to do this work, or someone will tell you, you know, you're really good at this. Have you thought about doing this kind of work? And that's how I kind of fell into, to answer your question, that's how I kind of fell into this field was like it wasn't something I had planned. If you, if you would have told me uh, 20 years ago that I would be doing this kind of work, I probably would have laughed at you. I would have told you, no, I'm going to be a clinical psychologist and I'm going to do some work around substance abuse and, you know, addiction studies. And But that's not what I do. Um, and I think that that's the most important thing is that you prepare yourself. And I say that for young people especially, you know. Well, Eddie, now that you are in the field and in the business, and given what's been going on here recently, uh, Eric Garner there in New York Mm -hmm. City murdered for supposedly selling illegal cigarettes, stop and frisk laws, stand your ground, uh, black men going to jail for low-level crimes, which is resulting in a lot of them getting shot, a lot of our women getting assaulted. I'm thinking of the young girl there in Texas that was assaulted <laughs> who was wearing a bathing suit. Yeah, um, that was part of it. Yeah. What, what, would you, what kind of reform would you recommend? What do you well, see I think that needs first, to be done? Well, that's a great question, and thank you for asking. Um, 
I think that what we first need to do is change the language on how we talk about criminal justice, right? Um, And I say this to say because um, where where we're at at right now didn't happen by accident. It's been a series of social policy decisions that have taken place over a 40-year period that have seen the uh, uh, prison population explode from you know, maybe 200,000 in the 1970s to, you know, over 2 million people now, right? And so that wasn't an accident. That's because there is an assumption about what criminal justice is and there's a language that we use in order to describe what we think as a society, and I use the word we in the very broadest sense, as a society, how we see criminal justice. And as a society, we see criminal justice defined solely by punishment. So let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, I want us to stop separating the prisons and the jails from the communities that feed them. Because, you know, prisons or jails aren't really just buildings. They're a way of thinking. They're a, a way of social policy, of implementing social policy. And uh, I don't know where you're from, but uh, if there's any public housing where you come from, and I know that's true here in New York and definitely true in Chicago and in many other large urban centers, if you live in the projects, for example, that's almost like an open-air prison. Because open-air the way, prison, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, the way housing projects are policed, the way they're controlled, um, is, is very similar to how people are controlled inside prisons and jails. There's limited movement. Um, there are, like, different rules that are, are in effect for black and Latino. And I don't want to say people of color because I, I hate that phrase, you know, because there are people of color and there's intersectionality, right? But the ones who are really getting targeted here, let's be frank, are black and Latino, mostly young black and Latino men. And the way men are socially controlled within the project is not that much different than how they're controlled inside medium and even maximum uh, security prisons, and I've been in both. I grew up in the projects here in New York City, and I've been incarcerated. And the similarities are really stark, all right? Um, So the stop and frisk is just another way of racialized, you know, racialized social control. And I think we need to, uh, in order for us to uh, uh, connect all the dots, we cannot see Eric Garner or Ferguson or Baltimore uh, in isolation. We need to see that, that that is part of a continuum of a set of social policies that create, in, in many instances, create really dangerous uh, situations for black and Latino men. And uh, so what I'm trying to say is that prisons are kind of a state of mind not so much just a building. And you have a continuum of prisons that lead from, you know, the uh, uh, specific neighborhoods in our country. And, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. people who live in Scarsdale or, you know, and really, you know, high, uh, uh, high-income areas in the United States are not going to prison. Though youth and sell, sell, the use and selling of drugs across all demographics are basically the same. But the ones that are getting arrested are black and Latino youth, right? So exactly, we need to when we start talking about what we want to do about the circumstances that led to Eric Garner's, you know, death, and that uh, that video is a snuff film. I'm sorry to say it. I got to put it that way 
And it's really hard to look at because what they did was they, they choked somebody to death and they got away with it. You know, what happened in Ferguson is the same thing. Um, and the reason why these things are allowed to happen is because the way we look at criminal justice, right, and the way uh, society itself looks at black and Latino men uh, and, and also women. I don't want to, you know, uh, exclude women, but like, the vast majority of the people being um, impacted by these social policies are mostly young black and Latino men. And so we can't talk about Eric Garner without talking about, you know, uh, social policies that create mass incarceration because they're very much linked to each other. You know, Eric Garner uh, couldn't move around his neighborhood that much because he got stopped a lot of times. If you notice in that video clip, he's telling the cop, you're not doing this to me again. Right? This has been done, this stopping and frisking, this harassing. It's something that's done so many times to so many people in certain communities that after a while you get really tired of it. And at that day, he said, you know, I'm tired of this. You know, you got to stop doing this. And his life was taken because he sold, uh, allegedly, right, allegedly sold loose cigarettes. Um, what kind of society do we live in if that's the way we're defining uh, a justice, right? Because the man who killed him didn't even go to trial. Forget about, um, you know, going to trial and being found innocent. He didn't even make it to trial. So these are... These things happen because there are certain policies in place that allow them to happen. And I think that if you want to talk about reforms, we need to, as a people, we need to start talking about criminal justice or criminal injustice in the okay. language that we define, on the terms that we define as a people, because we're the ones who are dying on the street. We're the ones who are actually dying inside prisons because the same kinds of abuses that happen outside on the street also happen inside prisons, except no one really sees what's happening inside prison. Okay. Um, this uh, this idea of, uh, you mentioned getting away with it, um, and I want you to contrast, if you will. You just had a, a special prosecutor appointed there in New York City, I understand, to deal specifically with violence towards uh, people that have been put in custody, and as we know, that's mostly blacks and Latinos. Contrast that with what's going on in Baltimore when we talk about a city like Baltimore where those officers were indicted. We have a black mayor, female mayor, and a black prosecutor um, who didn't need a special prosecutor as we seem to need uh, there in New York City. What are your thoughts on that? On those two situations. Well, I just want to just clarify a little of what uh, uh, Governor Cuomo did here in New York State. What he did was temporarily appoint the Attorney General to oversee any instances where um, police have, you know, uh, or what they call justifiable, justifiable felonies. That's a temporary thing that's supposed to last one year. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I'm also very concerned that it's just another Band-Aid and not real, not, not a really well-thought-out uh, policy. I believe that what we need, and this is something that uh, police departments across the land are afraid of and are fighting them, will fight this to the end. 
is we need independent oversight of our police department. We also need some independent oversight of our prisons and jails. I don't know if you're aware, there was a young brother who committed suicide who spent three, more than three years in Rikers Island, though he had never been convicted of any crime. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Okay. All right. Thank you, James. Okay, uh, Eddie, you were talking to us about the young man that committed suicide who had been incarcerated for so long without a trial or hearing, no bond, et cetera. Right, right. And not only was he just incarcerated, he was put into what we call solitary confinement or isolation. And he developed uh, uh, mental health needs as a result of all this confinement. And he was also, as actual proof of him being brutalized, by uh, correctional officers and other people who have been incarcerated. And this took such a toll on his mental state of being um, that, you know, eventually he took his life. Sadly, it's a tragedy. But uh, Khalif was his name. Um, his story is not a story in isolation. There are many stories like that. Um, and, what we're doing is what, what what I call racialized social control is that we're stunting the growth of our young men and women uh, by using this form of uh, justice that's predicated on punishment, it's predicated on retribution, right? And, yeah. you know, most of our justice, the most of the justice that we implement in our society is retributive in, 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 in nature, meaning that it's about getting even, right? Uh, but there are other forms of justice. And when I talk about uh, we as a people need to start developing a different language with which to talk about justice with, is that there are other forms of justice. There is restorative justice. There is transformative justice. And then there's another, you know, uh, another model that was uh, put forward by people at the New Leadership Institute, my, my brother, a mentor named Eddie Ellis, who called it human justice. So it's kind of coming back away from the wild, wild west thing where, you know, somebody shoots you so you shoot them or somebody commits a crime and you punish them and that's all you do. There, there has to be something more than that. Otherwise, what we, what we become is like we become like a wild west show, and that's where we're at right now. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, talking about this uh, gentleman in isolation who committed suicide. I like our listeners to be aware of this judge in Pennsylvania who was getting cash for sending uh, juveniles to a certain uh, juvenile institution, and that was Judge Mark A. Calavarella, and I'll spell mm -hmm. that last name, C-L-A-V-A-R-E-L-L-A. -L -L like for our listeners to Google him, um, and this guy had a pipeline Kids for cash. He ruined something like right. two, three thousand lives, and one of those young kids uh, committed suicide as well. Right. Uh, right. I mean, so we're talking about some fundamental reform in terms of screening these judges, screening a better screening process for correctional officers, anyone working in the prison and, system, and also just changing, you know, changing the the whole structure itself. Because I'll tell you, uh, people talk about body cameras. People talk about having more diversity within police uh, forces. 
And, and I think those, again, are, are band-aids um, because what police, what these social institutions represent and what they protect is the status quo, right? So you can have, like in Rikers Island, where this young man died, uh, the vast majority of the SEALs there are black or Latino, but yet the same kinds of abuses that happen in, in prisons where you have majority white officers were still happening there because what they're manifesting is the foundation of, you know, uh, of what criminal justice or justice or, or social control is today in America. So you can have, you know, a, a bunch of, a lot of black and Latino officers committing the same kind of abuses because what you're doing is you're propping up, and I'm going to sound very, uh, I, might, I might turn off some listeners, it's, you know, they're protecting white supremacy. That's what it comes down to because if they were to put the same kind of um, attention um, that they put on black and Latino youth in urban areas, if they were to put that kind of attention in suburban areas or malls and started arresting young white youth at the same rate that they do black and Latino youth, there'd be a revolution in this country. And that's simply because there is this, you know, white supremacy, this is white privilege. You can use drugs, you can sell drugs in, 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 certain, in certain communities and not end up going to prison. Maybe you might end up going to um, a rehab. I personally feel that um, my own my own personal case, I probably, if I would have had the, the resources and the connections, I would have never gone to jail. This is not to condone what I did, but I'm just right. pointing something out that, that's real. If I would have had the right lawyers who were connected with the judges and they, if they played golf together and one day they said, you know, uh, you got this kid Rosario, man, you know, like, uh, give him a break. I, I, I'll give you Rodriguez if you let Rosario go, right? These are how these things happen. And um, I probably wouldn't have done time. The judge was, all right, make sure he goes to a rehab. You know, and I don't want to see his face in my court again. They all belong to the same social clubs and golf clubs and and whatnot. What do you think of uh, privatization of uh, the penal system in a lot of states, particularly Texas? Yeah, that's uh, really concerning because now you're putting profit motive, motive on the warehousing of bodies, right? So that's what basically happens inside prisons is that in jails is that you take people and you incapacitate them, right? That's another form. That's another part of the punishment paradigm, right? So right. That you commit a crime, they incapacitate you, meaning that they put you away. They 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 remove you from society. They put you inside of a a prison or a jail, your civil rights are abrogated. You don't have, you know, like a lot of people don't know that slavery wasn't really ever fully abolished. In the 13th Amendment, there is a clause that says slavery is done with except in the cases where someone commits a crime. Exactly. And, then, and in that way, you can become a slave. And so that you see, which, you know, what people talk about the new Jim Crow and all this stuff, what they're talking about is that, you're creating, oh, you know, Michelle Alexander was talking about creating a whole different class of people who don't have the same rights as the other people do, right? So when you start uh, combining that with a profit motive, what you're doing is that you're creating, you're creating a demand to uh, 
to incarcerate people. Uh, just the other day, I forget where I read it from, uh, but there were a couple of uh, companies that are running uh, for-profit prisons in a couple of states, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were actually very angry because um, uh, prison populations were declining, and they were telling the states that they were going to sue if that continued, or, or the, uh, you know, or they would stop, you know, running these prisons, or they were in some way, shape, or form trying to uh, compel and coerce the state to incarcerate more people because they weren't making enough money. Now, here you're combining the profit motive with the abrogation of rights of people, of mostly of black and Latino people, and what you have is, you know, basically some form of apartheid with the profit motive. And that's what uh, privatization is all about. And again, and lastly, uh, the worst abuses that happen in, in prisons or jails are ones that are run privately. You know, you mentioned the name of Michelle Alexander. We may have some listeners who are unaware of who she is. Can you bring them up to date on sure. who Michelle Alexander is? Michelle Alexander is a, uh, a, a civil rights attorney. And then also she wrote the book, The New Jim Crow, which uh, has become a bestseller and which kind of, uh, she actually wrote this book because she was someone uh, who at one time, if she heard someone like me speaking, she would have called me a conspiracy theorist. And she did some research and started finding out that um, uh, what was happening with the criminal justice system was a, a new form of Jim Crow. So people were being... Uh, chased down, locked up, incarcerated, uh, mostly predicated on, on the color of their skin. And once you are locked up or you have a criminal uh, record, your rights are in some way, shape, or form abrogated. In some states, you lose the franchise. You lose the ability to vote forever, right? So you have millions and millions of people, for example, in the United States who cannot vote today, uh, mostly black and Latino people, who cannot vote today because they have a felony on their record. Um, so anyway, she wrote her book because she. the more research she did, the more horrified she became. Here's someone who's a lawyer, who was a trained civil rights attorney, um, who knew the system pretty well, who believed in the system wholeheartedly until she did some investigating and became horrified at what was going on. So, like, of course, one of the things that she writes about in her book is that we incarcerate more black men, uh, we incarcerate a higher percentage of black people in the United States today than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. The documentary you mentioned, Save You By Any Other Name, is, is, is also a book for those who enjoy books, but it's also an excellent documentary. Will open your eyes. I mean, there are so many, there, you know, the, the, the remarkable thing is that there's so many resources out there, and uh, but it's not reaching out the, it's not reaching the, the public. Um, I'm also uh, a blog writer, and I've neglected my blog for a few years now. I plan to continue to uh, to I'm going to plan to resuscitate that and start writing a lot about my ideas around criminal justice solutions, uh, where we need because this is also intellectual warfare, right? So we need to have a counterpoint to what the mainstream is talking about. So you hear the mainstream media they talk about you know, the criminality of, of blackness, right? Being black is like almost a crime in itself. 
uh, and we need to um, we need to counter that with our own narrative, with our own analyses. And I'm I'm hoping to do more of that. That's part of like my next evolution. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I would encourage anyone to uh, get in touch with me. My email is eyrosario at gmail dot com. If you have questions or if you're interested in anything I've said uh, tonight. Please uh, feel free to reach me. Let us, have that, let us have that email address again. Sure. It's eyrosario, one word, at gmail.com. Okay. And, um, you know, you've said a lot here um, in the last few uh, seconds there. One thing I'd like for you to do is very briefly explain to our listeners the importance of Attica and Governor Rockefeller's response back in the 70s. What was that all about? Yeah, sure. And um, so for those that don't know, Attica, the Attica Rebellion uh, or the Attica Uprising, which some people call the riot, but it's actually a revolution, happened in the early 70s. And what, what it came about because of the dehumanization of people who were incarcerated in Attica. And you had people who had, um, had, had awakened politically while they were incarcerated. And they said that, you, you know, you can no longer treat us like that anymore. We are human beings. There's a gentleman who was killed during the rebellion who yelled out, we are men, and we will not be treated like animals. There's a great documentary, Attica's All of Us. If you can, it's on, it's on, you can find it on YouTube or Hulu or something like that. If you can't, watch that. Uh, Anyway, these men uh, rebelled. They took over Attica for several days, and uh, it was uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who eventually became vice president, was governor at the time, uh, after several days. And, and what they did, these, the guys who led this rebellion, what they wanted was, was things like uh, proper food, um, libraries, uh, access to law libraries so they can, you know, uh, 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 fight their cases, and many times these men didn't even have adequate counsel when they went to trial. Uh, you know, toilet paper, <laughs> really basic necessities mm. of how, what, yeah. it mean, what it means to be a human being. And they, they weren't asking, you know, for, like, you know, the, the sun and the moon. Uh, after several days, uh, Nelson Rockefeller decided that he had enough. It, it was, a, it was a, an international in- incident. Uh, everybody from all over the world was there, you know, press was there every day. He decided to uh, uh, send in the National Guard, and they massacred everybody, uh, almost everybody inside that uh, Attica yard, including correctional officers. Correctional officers, yeah. Yeah. They went in there by helicopter and just sprayed the whole yard, uh, prison yard, with with bullets and, and, and just massacred everybody. Those that survived were brutalized were tortured, were made examples of. and But what it did was it created uh, an international incident and brought attention to what needed to uh, the brutalization of people who were incarcerated. And some reforms were enacted as a result of that. So uh, as a result of that, we have there's a grievance system that's in place in New York State prisons now, which is now a joke, but at one time was somewhat effective where if you feel as a prisoner your rights have been abrogated, you can go through a grievance system and, 
you know, uh, cite your case, in other words. Um, or if you've been abused by a guard, you can, you know, uh, bring that to a case. It, it doesn't work at all right now. I've visited many, many prisons, and uh, the grievance uh, procedure is broken, but at one time, this is what came out of Attica. I will add, though, that the sad part is that uh, since Attica happened, um, uh, at the time there were maybe 13,000 people that were incarcerated in all of New York State prisons in 1971. In 2000, there were 75,000 people incarcerated in New York State prisons. So in many ways, um, we've gone backwards. We now have in New York State about 54,000 people currently incarcerated in uh, New York State prisons. I say all that to say is that uh, the men who lost, who gave their lives to bring attention to the dehumanization and brutalization of people inside prisons, um, they gave their lives for that. And yet, after what happened was they 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 stepped up the the, the system, criminal justice system, stepped up their mm-hmm. game, so to speak, yeah. and kind of went into hyper hyper mode and you know, uh, you can, you know, uh, I don't know if any uh, of your listeners know are familiar with the Central Park Five, you know, who were called animals. Uh, Central Park Five was about five black and Latino uh, young young men who were accused of raping a um, uh, a Wall Street uh, banker uh, woman in Central Park. It turns out they were innocent, uh, but they all did time. And Donald Trump, who's in you know, well, they've all, the they've all been released since then, haven't they? They've all been released, yeah. But Donald Trump at the time, who is now in the news now as a, as a uh, presidential, you know, candidate, uh, yeah. he was, like, at the forefront of, you know, um, of calling these uh, these black and Latino youth animals. He's very belligerent about that. Oh, and, animals, rapists, murderers. Yeah. Yes, and he's doing it again with Mexicans, right? So you a know, very broad we, brush. We should, you know, as Latinos and Blacks, we gotta watch out how they try to play us against each other, right? Because I'm I'm of Puerto Rican descent. I identify as Afro Latino. Now, if you look at me, I'm light skinned with blue eyes. My culture, you know, supersedes, you know, whatever the phenotype that people might see. And I know that my my fate and the fate of my people are closely tied to the fate of African Americans and, and you know, and others. Uh, so we need to watch out when uh, they try to play us against each other because now it's Mexicans, right? But tomorrow it could be black people again or it could be Puerto Ricans again. Uh, oh, so yeah. We need, to be, we need to be really careful about that. Uh, we need to be um, unified in our approach. We have our differences. We're not all the same, but um, we may have come... Uh, on different ships, but we're all on the same boat now. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so, yeah, so Attica uh, was this really big explosion, and it's still iconic today in American history. And uh, what we're trying to do is now using that the icon of uh, uh, Attica to bring to light what's going inside, you know, behind the prison walls. Because, you know, wall, the prison walls are there to keep people in, but they're also there to keep people out so you can't see what's going inside. Uh, and there's a lot of nasty stuff going on inside. Uh, really bad shit. Excuse my language. Yeah, I, 
I was really interested in your mentioning that the spike in the numbers of incarcerations, and if our listeners would get into Michelle Alexander's book, that yes. spike probably started back with Ronald Reagan during his administration mm-hmm. and his mm-hmm. war on drugs and yeah. came right on through right up to uh, Clinton yeah. and some of the decisions that he made or yeah. policies that he instituted yeah. also fed into that into that number spike. That was quite a spike. Uh, yeah, I mean, Clinton did a lot. I mean, this is why I'm, you know, uh, when people talk about um, um, the two parties working together, I get nervous because any time those two parties start working together, uh, we get, we get the, the, you know, we get screwed. And, um, exactly. Uh, you know, that's why I, that's why I say that uh, justice today in America is really, the rationalization and the protection of white privilege. That's basically it. I can't put it any plainer than that. Um, and uh, we have to watch out. Like, you know, I, I, I'll give you a good example. Bernie Sanders, uh, who's running uh, on the Democratic ticket, right, or as a Democrat in the primary, has very right. radical, you know, I agree with a lot of his economic policies but he has rarely or has yet to mention Black Lives Matter, right? Um, He doesn't talk about race because I believe that he believes, he honestly believes that if you do economic uh, uh, reform, that that reform will also help black and Latinos. I don't agree with that. I think economic reform without racial justice uh, will never trickle down to us because you could open up, make all the universities for free, free now, right? If you wanted to, but it's the same oh, yeah. that exists today would continue to exist. Very few Black and Latinos will be able to go to universities, even if they were free, because there are problems with the educational system in our in our communities that are not attributable to us, that are attributable to the way schools are funded. And so, I don't agree you know, that uh, you can do the, the economic part without doing the racial part. I, I just And there are brothers and sisters that I know that talk about economic empowerment. But I'm going to tell you, if you don't have racial, if you don't answer the racial question, the class question will never get answered. You know, that's an interesting uh, perspective you brought up. I've been following uh, this Cornell West and the complaints that he's made against Obama. Uh, not being a black president. But then on the other hand, you have Obamacare. And who's going to be impacted by that if it's not the poor folks, and most of those folks are black? Mm-hmm. Um, he has started uh, a release uh, program, uh, commuting sentences of individuals who have been uh, convicted and sent to prison for low-level drug possession and drug sales. Who does that impact? Um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, definitely. we can go on and on, and these policies. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no. What I was going to say is that I, I've uh, personally I've been critical of some of Obama's policies or his approaches, but I've been loath to criticize them more publicly because the brother doesn't get a break, man. You know what I mean? It's like the, mm-hmm. uh, you know. <clears throat> Uh, it's out of, out of the cat is out the bag that they they had a meeting and they said and I'm talking about the Republicans and the conservatives. I just the Republicans. There's a lot of conservative Democrats 
um, said, we're not going to go, we're not going to co-sign anything this guy does. Oh, no, so, You know, and so I, I can't, I can't kick that, I can't kick the brother, you know what I mean? Uh, I do have critiques of his approaches, you know, I'd say you know, the whole top, you know, top down economic reform type thing, because, you know, you have, you have, you know, you have the, 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 uh, the stock uh, market is the you know, highest levels that ever they have, but you know people are still aren't making any money. But I'm not, you know, I, I love Brother West. I think he has a great analysis. I think he came too vociferous in his critique of Obama. Uh, I think his language sometimes kind of you know tripped him up. Um, so I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to pile on on Obama. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. I, I can't. I you know, and every time I want to. Some white politician will say some shit about him that I you know, just says, you know, I, I, I'm not going to pile on on that, you know. Uh, yeah, you don't want to drink that Kool-Aid, huh? Yeah, well, you know, it's wrong, man, what they're doing to him. He's, you know, he's trying to do it. And Obama was never really a very radical person to begin with. Now, I wasn't expecting him to, you know, uh, get his reparations or anything like that. You know, he's not that kind of political mind. Um, but he's had a lot to deal with. Um, and so... I can't for the life of me um, throw on him you know, while everybody is try- trying to kick him, you know, uh, especially the racism. You know, a lot of that is racially motivated. And so I'm a little low to, you know, jump on that bandwagon because of that. Right or wrong, I can't. You know what I mean? I can't. You know, speaking of the, the race issue and whatnot, and um, there are a number of blacks who are talking about leaving this country. You know, they want to go to places like... Costa Rica, Panama, and uh, other places outside the United States. But given what's going on with the Haitians, which some people are calling genocide by the Dominic, uh, mm-hmm. Dominicans, what's your thoughts on that, what's going on in, in the uh, I mean, Dominican I, I Republic? I think we've tried this already. You know, um, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I am at a point in my life where I am – seriously doubting everything I've done. I've worked within the system for the last 20 years. I've tried to do incremental change. I've tried to do radical change, but I've worked within the system. And, I, I, you know, for a long time now, I'm realizing that working within the system is only going to gain a very incremental change, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also become very tired of our country, I, I can understand leaving that. I think about it all the time. I think about going somewhere else and, you know, starting over. Uh, but I'm too old. They're not going to accept me somewhere else anyway. <laughs> um, so I do think that if that's what you want to do, man, then do it. I mean, do it right. Um, but what I fear is that that takes energy away from creating a real movement here. I mean, because like you said, uh, colorism, all right, is everywhere. India, uh, in South America. I know friends who went to Brazil in the 80s thinking that Brazil was a racial paradise. It's not. No such thing. No such thing, you know, but there was a myth about that because largely because how Latinos talk about race is very different from how race is discussed in America and the structures are different and blah, blah, blah. And as a result, you have a lot of intermarriage between dark skin and light skin Brazilians. I think, and I think the uh, in Puerto Rico you find the same thing. You have 
lots of intermarriage, you know, where between light-skinned Puerto Ricans and dark-skinned Puerto Ricans. That's mostly because ethnicity in some cases trumps, you know, phenotype, right? But that's not always true. Um, the same the same things that occur here around color lines, around, you know, the, the breakdown around color uh, where it's poverty and, you know, incarceration and, and, and all, you know, all the, all the demographics and all the, you know, cultural markers are the same wherever you go uh, to varying degrees. So, I mean, if you want to go move to Liberia and start a movement there, that's fine. I'm not going to knock you for that. Uh, if you want to go to Brazil and think you're going to a racial, you know, utopia, I, I, I have news for you. It's not. Uh, but what about here? I mean, we've been here for a long fucking time. You know, and I, and I, I swear because it, it's really frustrating. You know, um, we were here long, long before a lot of people who say this is their country were here, right? I probably had exactly. ancestors who were in Puerto Rico way before any white people ever came here. You know, black people came here from the get, right? Um, we have a stake here, and we should take it. Um, but what it needs is real a real radical movement, uh, not a moment. And I think I'm starting to see that a little bit with young people. You know, young people talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that can that can that can evolve into a real movement that starts challenging whiteness as the default for like who we're supposed to be. Um, and but I'm afraid that moving away from here and all that might take away from the energy that could be better put to something else. Yeah, but this movement towards uh, trying to do something about the social injustice in view of the state killings that we've uh, been experiencing here lately, uh, do you think that might lead to uh, genocide? Uh, much in the same way that uh, genocide was put up on the Native Americans, the indigenous people of this country. I mean, I you think, think? It, I think it, it's it's what well, that's one of the consequences. I mean, people are dying, right? Uh, I was watching this uh, movie uh, the other day. It's called Inside Out. It's an animated film that's about the uh, inner processes of a young developing young developing girl, right? And what mm-hmm. happens is that as she goes through the <laughs> As she goes through her development, there are core memories that create these, like, foundations, right? One foundation is the family, right? Another foundation is, you know, friendship. And these are all little islands that are created by core emotions and core memories, right? And the film is about tracking this young girl's development. And this is a young girl who grows up in an upper-middle-class family with a father and a mother, she gets all the attention, all the love, all the nurturing that she needs, and she's still going through some stuff. And while I'm watching that, because I never take a break, um, I start saying, well, what happens to a black and Latino youth who doesn't even have a stable environment? What happens to the, 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 the core issue of family, of happiness, of joy, of friendship, of, of a young person, a vulnerable young person who is not getting what they need? who has food insecurity. I remember growing up, there were times that there wasn't that much in the refrigerator. You know what I mean? People laugh about the, the wish sandwich, you know, two slices of bread and mayonnaise and wish you had some meat to put on it. I know what that's yeah. about. You know, food insecurity. And what does that do to uh, a developing mind? Racism. 
What does that do to a developing mind? And we're finding out psychologists are now linking, you know, a post-traumatic stress disorder to the uh, ill effects of racism. So I'm saying all that to say is that it is a form of cultural genocide already happening. It's not if it will happen. It, it is it's that it is happening. The, the question is to what degree it's going to happen. And I think the question to what degree is largely dependent on those of us who want to do something about it and those of us who are impacted by that. And we can say, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to pack up my stuff and leave, and if that's what you're going to do, I'll give you more power. But there are many of us who don't have that, who will not have that option. You know what I mean? It's like in uh, Katrina. People criticize those who didn't leave, but those who didn't leave couldn't leave. They didn't have a car. They didn't have the economic wherewithal to leave Katrina. And so they were, they, you know, they were killed um, because they didn't have the resources. So, um, yeah, this is, this is a form, a form of uh, this racialized social control has consequences. And one of those consequences is death, right? Another one of those consequences is the destruction of young minds. Right? So there are a lot of different consequences that come of, as part of this, you know, white supremacy, this, you know, racism. Uh, and, and it's no joke. It, it's a life and death situation. You know, and speaking of racism and things that have been going on in terms of forgiveness, you know, there in Baltimore, people were really incensed over the burning of the CVS and didn't want to forgive the so-called thugs for burning it down. Um, you know, there's an indifference to the people that were killed there in uh, South Carolina, the nine people killed in the church, the burning of the churches that have been going on um, since then. Now we got this flag business playing up. Uh, and I understand it's coming down tomorrow. Uh, nobody's right. trying to extend any mercy to Bill Cosby. Uh, but people are willing to forgive blatant racist. What do you have to say about that kind of thinking uh, coming from your expertise? I mean, forgiveness 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 and who we forgive, who we don't forgive. uh, I mean, I get frustrated. And then when you finish Uh, that, uh, James is going to come back on the port and then we'll end up things. Okay, great, great. I mean, forgiveness is a very deep subject. Uh, for me, uh, forgiveness is, is a necessary thing for you to live a, a, a full life. Um, but there are steps to that, right? You don't just, like, one day somebody does something to you, then the next day you're completely forgiven, forgiving them because that's kind of superficial, right? Because you have to go through a process. Um, that process might mean you, you're angry. That process might mean that you're grieving. You just don't go from one step to the other. So that's one. The other part is that forgiveness is not really condoning what someone did to you. You know, I've had things done to me in my life uh, that had, uh, you know, grave repercussions for me that really harmed me for a long, long time. And it wasn't until I I was able to process that and then forgive that, forgive that, that, that person, um, but I have, I have first to forgive myself. In other words, I had to go through a personal process before I could extend that forgiveness. And I think that um, 
I'm not going to knock the, the, the family members of those who died, who extended their forgiveness, but um, I'm, I'm concerned, like, as with many other people, that when things happen to Latinos or blacks, that we're expected to be the forgiving ones. I'm mm-hmm. tired of that. I, and I think that uh, a lot of people are also tired of that. I think um, we need to get angry. We need to grieve this process. We need to get angry. And um, just going to the default immediately to the default of forgiveness uh, is concerning to me. But I will say that it's something that we need to do eventually. But I'm just tired of us having to be the ones that, 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 that do this. So I guess I land on the side of, you know, I've heard a lot of people say disparaging things around that. I'm not going to disparage family members, but, you know, that's their right. That's a very yeah. personal thing. Um, yes, it is. But, but for me, okay. Well, let's bring let's bring Hello? James on. James, are you yeah. there? Yes, I'm here. Anger. Okay. I think I went past that. I don't know where I'm at now, but it's past anger. Okay. Where is my America? Where or where can she be? Can someone please help me? Help me, please. I seem to be in the wrong place, lost and confused. That's who I am and where I need to be. I'm searching for my country, tis of these sweet land of liberty for everyone but me, land where my mother cries endlessly, land where my father and brothers die daily, land of the noble free except for me, sweet freedom song for all but me, author of liberty to all but me. Why, I say to thee, should I sing in a land so bright within freedom's holy light? Why am I not protected and respected within freedom's holy light and protected and protected by thine holy might, great God, King of all? We are not expendable, expendable disposable products. As of this time, 823-14, p.m., this day of Sharpton, Staten Island March, I demand my 14th Amendment rights be upheld. Upheld. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the U.S., nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This America is the moment of truth. We will come to a rational decision and course of action due to the facts, rules, and laws now in place. We must, with our cause being so just, in this year of 214, where or where is my America? Why or why can it still be found? May I look underground, wait another day, you say? Oh, no way, because I have no more time, so just go ahead and give me mine. And that was written in 214. All right. Very good. All right. And that's an excellent note to end on. Gentlemen, I thank you both. James the poet. And my Lit-Ket. guest uh, Lit-Ket. I'm sorry? James Litket. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, gentlemen. All right, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Good night. Well there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the gift of freedom. Uh, so I've been your host, Preston Washington, coming to you out of Kansas City, Missouri. Hope you enjoyed the show. Stay in touch when you want black history 24-7, 365 days per year. Ms. Giff has no end when it comes to black history. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.